Hello and welcome to Did You Read the Book, a comparative podcast where movie buffs and bookworms come together to talk about stories and their adaptations that we love, hate, or love to hate. I am your host, Erin Palmer, and today I am joined by Megan and Julie. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hello. Hello. Welcome. I'm so glad to have you on the show. We are so good to be here. I'm so excited. I know. Seriously, this is one of my favorite books and definitely one of my favorite shows, like possibly my favorite show. Oh, good. Okay. Well, then with for, without further ado, Megan, can you introduce the source material for us? Well, today is Good Omens, a novel by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, as said on the cover. <laughs> awesome. And uh, it was published in 1990. So quite a, quite a ways there. Awesome. Great. And Julie, what is our adaptation today? Our adaptation is Good Omens, also the same title, <laughs> uh, directed by Douglas McKinnon in 2019. So, you know, 50 years ago, by how we're all feeling. <laughs> yeah, so very, very recent. Excellent. Yes. Awesome. Great. Um, so before we get, begin, I just wanted to kind of give a quick disclosure. Um, obviously, the whole point of this podcast is to have a deep discussion about a source and adaptation. So spoiler alert, there's going to be a lot of spoilers. We are going to talk very in-depth about everything. So if you had wanted to see this without any sort of spoilers, probably pause, go watch it, go read it, and then come back to us and we can deep dive together. Um, so before we begin, I wanted to just ask a quick question of the both of you. Are you guys pro-source or pro Pro adaptation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. They're they're both such good examples of their own media. So mm -hmm. I, I don't have and really much preference between one or the other unless I'm preferring that type of media on a on a particular day. Mm, that's awesome. That's so rare to have that kind of response because typically it's one hard, the other like one or the other. It's never like, oh, I can't decide. They're both so good. It's it's rare. Admittedly, I am pretty I, I am I am bad about that, whereas it's like usually I'll just take them as different stuff, but it I prefer books sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, Julian, you feel the same? Oh yes, most definitely. They are both great representations of their own medium and I uh prefer reading when it comes to stories but I also enjoy tv shows and movies when they're done very well and um, typically when it comes to adaptations definitely prefer the original source whatever it is but this mm -hmm. one I think they both do so well embracing the use of their separate mediums without getting bogged down in trying to do what the other one did or in this case the, uh, the, the adaptation bogged down in what the book did and focusing instead on what it can do now that it's visual and it's great and I love it oh mm -hmm. awesome yes. Well, that's exciting because I feel exactly the same way. And it's been really hard to pick one or the other. So I'm like, why why pick one or the other when you have two awesome versions of a great story? Yeah. So that's great. Um, well, then let's get into it. Megan, can you give us a quick little synopsis about the book? Well, uh, Good Omens, the novel, is basic. It does start with in the beginning. Uh, and that's very literally where it starts. It starts it's out with God creating in the world. And uh, this angel and demon discuss that. And that thread runs through the whole book where this angel and demon are very preoccupied with uh, with this world, including when it comes to the end times. And, mm. you know, they both see it's coming, but then they're like, wait, no. So they decide, okay, so what if we, we stop that? Or we try mm -hmm. to stop that? And then Antichrist gets involved. And <laughs> that's, when, that's when things really start getting wild. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So. Okay. So what I wanted to kind of pose the question to you guys is what stood out to you? What did you like? What kinds of themes did you feel that were really good in the book? Just kind of your initial thoughts. 
I love the little footnotes throughout the entire book. <laughs> yes. yes. That's a hallmark, and that's a hallmark of the of Pratchett. Uh, so like I, I read a couple of Pratchett books before and like that was one of the things that I really I really enjoyed about that. Those those little footnotes where you just get very nice little flavor of something that you obviously couldn't be put into the scope of the narrative just because the the prose is really tight. It's really it's actually quite the like for all that it seems to ramble in some places it's it's very deliberate and that's mm -hmm. a you know kind of a, a thing that both of these both these authors do really well but just having that extra little taste of what's outside of the narrative is extremely fun and mm -hmm. and also just funny mm -hmm. as well yeah it's a very classic british humor feel to it um i know that the, this kind of form of writing has been kind of relatable to Monty Python and other kind of, you know, comic geniuses. And that text really comes through, especially with Terry Pratchett and having mm -hmm. the kind of the humor of Terry Pratchett and then also having kind of the visual descriptors from Neil Gaiman, which he's always mm -hmm. been so incredibly good at. Um, mm -hmm. It's a really nice harmony between the two of them. And I wish that they were able to write more books together because it would have been know. awesome to have uh more books like that GNU yeah. Terry Pratchett I know <laughs> how dare you die <laughs> no I know and they were they they worked really well together so this book definitely shows that mm -hmm. um Julie did, was there anything else about the book that you really enjoyed uh just like what was mentioned before just uh like the nice tight descriptions of like all the characters like just a sentence and you just get like the whole not just the look but the vibe of a character and nothing more needs to be said or described or described about them for you to just like immediately picture them in your mind as you're reading and exactly how they're doing how they're you know uh, why they're doing what it's just everything is just described so succinctly that uh, it just feels nice and tight and uh, the flow is consistent throughout the entire book that you don't even notice that you've read the entire thing in an evening. <laughs> I know it's yep. a really quick read and, and it's, it's nice to have books like that. Cause you feel like you just absorbed it and you're like, Oh my gosh, I don't realize that. I didn't realize that I had finished this in a sitting and yes. it's, it's always fun to have books like that. Mm -hmm. What Julie said, uh, you know, that you get that characterization in a sentence. Uh, I have had a lot less energy to get attached to characters, which is distressing because I really love to, you know, just find new books and new characters. But you don't have to work to get attached to these characters. They just out at you and say, "You're the, the, we're going here now," and you're like, "Okay, this is great." <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that that's actually a beautiful segue, Megan. Thank you. I was gonna ask you guys, what did you, what do you think of the characters and how they're portrayed? <laughs> in this book i mean this was uh as i mentioned to you guys earlier that good omens was my introduction to neil gaiman yeah. uh, and it was also kind of my introduction to more uh subversive thoughts in uh pop culture about like you know the good guys aren't always good and the bad guys aren't always bad mm -hmm. so mm. i immediately fell in love with crowley because you know evil. <laughs> <laughs> but also aziraphale yeah. and how he wasn't like you know even though he was an angel and you know the uh i would say the only quote-unquote good guy official 100 percent in the book yeah. he is a bit of a bastard every yeah, crowley says. Yeah. yeah it's like uh you know when he they're driving off and uh aziraphale blows up the ticket um the, yeah, the meter maid's ticket book and he's like oh i thought that was one of your guys i didn't know that it was just a human thing yep. <laughs> it's like that was his only reason for doing it because he thought it was evil yep yep no i yeah 
I love, I love, love, love their dynamic. And I love yeah. how they have, you're right, Julie, they have that kind of weird gray area of, well, they say I'm bad, but am I that bad? Or if they say I'm good, but did I just do something that was that good? And they have this really funny, fuzzy area that they're constantly coming up against in the book. And that's kind of the beauty of the story is they are trying to, you know, they they kind of switch roles in a way where, you know, they're supposed to be doing one thing, but they kind of take over each other's roles, but just a little bit so that it seems like they're still on the right side of the fence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's yeah. it's such a great relationship that they've built in this story. Yeah. And I, I absolutely love them. They're just adorable. They yeah. are. <laughs> Especially oh, yeah. how uh, they describe that uh, hell isn't like, you know, a fount of evil and heaven isn't necessarily like, you know, a bounty of good, that mm-hmm. there's yes. names of sides. And if you want to get into like the true depths of evil or goodness, you look towards humanity, not angels and demons, yeah. which I thought was very interesting indeed Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a work that Gaiman takes throughout you know a lot of his other works too Mm -hmm. Um, not to get bogged down into other stuff but just saying that uh, I like the philosophy it presents in that in this quirky tale about like you know little kids defeating the apocalypse (laughs) yeah (laughs) and and incompetent demons and angels but that's what I like and also the fan fiction term for Crowley and Aziraphale is ineffable husbands yes course i mean it's been like that for a while <laughs> yes <laughs> it's uh, oh it's so wonderful and they and and there's other little kind of treats in there that they put like mm-hmm. the the hellhound and and how it's supposed to be yeah. this like harbinger of evil and it's the most terrifying animal that you would ever lay eyes on and then it ends up being like this itty bitty little dog and it's <laughs> yeah and it's it's just incredible little things like that where they kind of turn your stereotypes of heaven and hell upside down and make it into yeah. something something kind of funny and unique and that's um, very pratchett yes yeah <laughs> yeah it's Proper great mongrel. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it yeah. is fun to see and i do like that they have brought quite a bit of actual like religion and lore into mm-hmm. the mix but they've you know obviously done their own take on it and yeah. they're both notorious for doing that in their other writings yes. too but it's it's always fun to see yeah, and also that uh, you know it, it it starts literally at the beginning, like these, and, right. and especially for Ezra Fallon Crowley, where they're just so they're so dang old that mm-hmm. it's this good and evil thing has started to become a it, it's it's a bit tougher these days, especially because they've got all that all that backstory to it. it's mm-hmm. like you know you get the feeling that they feel like it was simpler in the beginning but even then it wasn't quite so simple because the immediate scene that they've got is uh well that one went down like a lead balloon (laughs) (laughs) which is so funny because the the that's what i so i'm going to pause you just for a second megan what i love about little things like that is that's actually the review that was given to led zeppelin when they first started (laughs) and they hadn't got picked their name yet they had a different yeah. name at that point, and one of the reviews said this this band is is gonna go down or is gonna fly like a lead balloon or something to that effect. Led and then like a Led Zeppelin, like a Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and then they named themselves Led Zeppelin. So it's just like little things like that where it, it starts at the dawn of time, and yet you're getting 20th century humor, and it's exactly. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. Sorry, Megan, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, 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 that works. That works perfectly because it it is like they they're very. They don't change much as far as their statements throughout the whole book. Their tones remain the same, but what they do change is the uh, is their way of doing things. And it's uh, and like they've just got a little bit of doubt at the beginning, 
you know, both of them. I mean, Crowley has uh, obviously is a bit more comfortable with with some of his doubt than Crowley. Crowley. When I hear it, it's it's a lot easier to say Crowley, but unrepentantly Americanized when I when I'm reading it, or just reading, or just listening to too much Supernatural. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. Is it's however you want to say it, but I think in in oh, well, it's, they do they do specify it's like it's Crowley first and then Crowley. <laughs> yes. What they do change is their outlook on good and evil, and the and the expectations of what needs to happen when while they're doing this, especially when this becomes the end of the world. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I especially like how you know, yes, like, as you said, Megan, they first sow that doubt between the both of them as to whether or not they did the good thing or the bad thing, but they also sow doubt into the reader who is at all familiar with any Christian mythology is like, is Adam and Eve eating the apple a bad thing? It's like that's, yeah. it's like it just brings that up. It's like, is it? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Moving on with the story. It's like, but yeah. I want to know the answer to the question. Wait. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's and they have like the very beginning. It's like the levity that they bring to it, where he uh, gives them the sword and. He's like, should you have given that to them? He's like, well, they they seemed like they needed it, and then they're like, you know, they reference it multiple times later. It's like, remember that time when you lost that sword? And it's, like, <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's so great how they have, you know, that they, they're supposed to be angels and they're supposed to be like omnipotent, omnipotent, and they're supposed yeah. to be like above all of that normal human stuff, but they kind of feel very bumbly in the beginning, yes. which very is like, humor. yeah, it's it's very funny. Well, are are the they side. bumbly or is Aziraphale specifically bumbly? I, yeah, I think it's definitely more well, focused on him. Yeah. Crowley and Crowley definitely he plays it smoother, but he's kind of a mess too. <laughs> yeah. well, well, they kind of bring up that Crowley, like specifically, you know, isn't like you know capital E evil or wanted yeah he's he sauntered vaguely downwards he just yeah. he didn't want to be a demon just hung out with the wrong crowd like oh hey it's Lucifer and the guys yeah <laughs> yeah no like there's the dramatis personae in the in the beginning like I'm literally looking at this page the list of all the characters mm-hmm. that's his description mm-hmm. <laughs> angels who did not so much fall as saunter vaguely downward <laughs> Well, I feel like most of his experience in the book is he saunters everywhere. So yeah. he slithers <laughs> everywhere because he's a snake, and I love I it. <laughs> no, wait, that's the adaptation. Never mind. Let's that. <laughs> yeah, we'll go that. But yeah, he does have a very kind of I don't even know how to describe a very like air airy and like kind of just kind of floats casual. around, very casual. Has no real committal <laughs> anywhere very demon-like and I, I do remember they they do highlight throughout the book the f- kind of favorite time periods that they like yeah. <laughs> um or yeah. favorite. which the history majors uh will obviously laugh at. you know my favorite thing about time taking us further away from the 14th century <laughs> <laughs> 14th century yeah, and it's so funny to hear kind of their idea of their their favorite times and he's like anything but the 14th century and i think he didn't he say like the the 20th century was his favorite because people basically tortured themselves and there was like no work that needed to be done yeah oh yeah he didn't he didn't want to work he even he had been yeah. I, held, I tied up the phone lines for like an hour <laughs> yeah yeah, and and of course, like he's in such contact with the world, obviously, and they they do a great job at highlighting this in, uh, in the book because they can describe what's happening w- uh, with you know their heads and stuff. Mm-hmm. So these these other two demons are just blinking at him, like how is that supposed to be actually any sort of evil? And he's like, you don't get it. 
people were going mental and and they don't he can't describe it in the narrative of visual medium because that would take up way too much screen time and it's very much a tell versus a show thing but Mm -hmm. it's when it's all text medium it, you can go on this little little rant about how call uh, call centers are a thing of evil. <laughs> are the yeah. worst. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they they reference to how like the the invention of the what is it the M twenty five or whatever that freeway yeah. is. But it's it's funny to see how you, you're you're right, Julie. The everyday stuff that he's basically used to his advantage, and they they always reference it like his other demon associates always reference that he's gone native. Mm-hmm. and how he's lived up there for so long that he's figured out kind of loopholes of like well people do this on their own so i just kind of give it a little extra nudge and then they just go nuts <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty genius to see a demon who just doesn't want to do his job and just kind of lets people do their thing and it seems to work out because he likes it <laughs> yeah well it's like to also mention going native it's like they also mentioned in the book and the adaptation that uh crowley has one thing that most demons do not an imagination yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what you can do with an imagination you work smarter not harder mm-hmm. and it's great <laughs> it's like but on the opposite side of that we don't really see much of aziraphale doing anything like in terms of creating good in the world he just like does what he's assigned and that's about it yeah and he's like really into his bookstore and that's about it. <laughs> well, he, and the whole thing, like a lot of the thing of Azraphel is that he seems to like working best as a source of inspiration because he doesn't like, he also doesn't like to do his job. He, mm-hmm. likes, he likes to hole up with his books, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and eat food. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, they're, they're both very much, they, they've gone native, but they've also gone like, this is just a nice place to stay. I can just sit, hang out with my, with, with my friend enemy. Friend enemy. <laughs> but, uh, ish. Uh, friend enemy of, of uh, 20,000 years or however. Six. No, 6,000 years. Sorry. I, I can never. 26. What's the difference? <laughs> Some absurdly small number. That's how you measure years. <laughs> yeah, it's some some absurdly small number compared to what we think of now. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the dinosaurs are apparently a joke, the paleontologists haven't figured out yet. Yeah. I love that. I love that from the book. <laughs> yeah, that flavor text. It's wonderful. Yes. Oh, great. Well, and it's interesting, too, to see um, with that flavor text, it is kind of like a narrator bringing you through the yes. story. And yeah. it is it is fun to see how that's a, a plot driver, as well as just kind of extra textural stuff that they, they put in. Yes. Um, it's a cool combination of the two, which you don't see very often, and again, is a very Terry Pratchett theme. Yeah. And it does kind of seem like two people are talking to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, except, like it's it's the same tone throughout the novel, but then you've get you've got this combined uh, combined in the voice. It's also uh, interjecting itself to add, except for the bits about the syphilis, and <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so quirky and so good, and it's light, and I I just can't get enough of it, and it is so rare to see that kind of stuff in books. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, I think probably because it, it was very much a conversation between Gaiman and Pratchett, it sparked the way it did. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was interesting too. I did a little back reading of just how they co-wrote it. Um, mm-hmm. 
And in the beginning, it sounds like they had kind of hashed out like this storyline. Yes, in the beginning. Uh, <laughs> exactly how it starts. So they they hashed out like, okay, this storyline is going to be Terry's and this storyline is going to be Neil's. And then they would kind of write a section, show each other, and then the other person would go back and write their section and see how it would kind of add up. And then at some point, they started switching storylines just to kind of keep it interesting. So parts of it are like, all of this section is written by Neil, or all of this section is Terry. But then at certain points, some of the characters, they like co-wrote sections together, which is crazy to me. Like, how do you write a book like that? I don't know how to write a book by myself. So (laughs) very carefully. (laughs) And actually having written collaborative pieces, it's, it's rough. Like you Mm -hmm. usually uh, having that back and forth is, is usually very, if you can do that with relative immediacy, then you can work it out a bit better. This was the nineties, right? Like they weren't emailing. (laughs) They were not really. Yeah. They, they they couldn't send large bits of text through this, and they were probably doing it, you know, by hand, by hand, or by or by typing it up and then sending it over or something. Yeah, but yeah, it's a lot of work and a lot of, and also to keep the tone from mm-hmm. two different authors, two very distinctive different authors, very distinctive styles. Yeah, I mean, I think it took them quite a few years to write for obvious reasons, because it is a really big piece to collaborate on. For being such a short book, it's a lot yeah. of content. But I mean, the, the effort shows, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely shows that they, they worked really hard to keep it congruent, and they did not disappoint. It is wonderful. Yeah. Ugh, such a, I just like, I, I, I'm trying to think of like topics to touch on because there's so many good things about it. Like, I can't pick I one. I know. There's so many awesome things. Um, I could talk about this book so much. Yes. So much. A day and a half. <laughs> yes. Well, and I think one of the kind of funnier parts of the book is when they bounce back to, um, oh, what is it? The um, the prophecy book by is it Ag- oh. Agnes Nutter? Oh, yes. Yes. It's Agnes Nutter. The Nice yeah. and Accurate Prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which. Yes. <laughs> So her her bloodline and talking about Agnes Nutter and the witch hunters, that's probably one of my favorite storylines besides, obviously, Crowley yeah. and Aziraphale. Um, yeah. It's so interesting to see how that's depicted, um, especially like the witch hunter. It's that one. I can't remember the old guy's name. Uh, Witchfinder Pulsifer. <laughs> Witchfinder, thou shalt not commit adultery, Pulsifer. Yes. So yes. that's the that's the original, and then his like long, 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 long distant relative, which is present day, is just so adorable and so <laughs> not fit for that role, and has yeah. all the electronics just like die on him whenever he gets close. The antithesis of uh, of magical and also of technological. Newt is a. Uh, I mean, he did find a witch. Yes, he did. Yes, <laughs> she was waiting for him. But it was, it was the one with, and that his other his ancestor found was also waiting for him. So there, I guess they they do find witches, but only if the witches want to be found. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how they've discussed prophecy in this book because the structure of the prophecy, it's the. I don't know how I'm going to describe this. So they they have like the prophecies are all in this book and then they're just kind of waiting for it to happen. They don't know what the time frame is, but they know it will eventually happen. And in so doing, it's basically created where um, the ancestor of Nutter is now basically just 
Anathema. Anathema, thank you. She's just basically waiting for stuff to happen in her life and she's not really living it because it's all mm-hmm. based off of this prophecy book. Yeah, she she knows what's happening for the most part, at least overarching, and then the rest of it is just kind of like, you know, take uh, get milk at the store or, you know, just, uh, kind of, you know, be here when this uh, when this happens. Right, all that um, filler. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she's it, like, she's very competent you know, throughout the story because she's like, yeah, I know what happens. Um, mm-hmm. Except for except for when uh, heaven and hell get involved, and she's like, oh no, mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, she, she has everything. Obviously, she's still. It's the the old card catalogs where they've they've got everything cross referenced and referenced. Like, and that has the feel of somebody who has definitely worked with old books before, and, you know, in translation. Which mm-hmm. I, I definitely know Neil Gaiman does. I don't know whether Terry Pratchett did, but it wouldn't with any sort of classics background. It's, it's probably probably pretty good odds. Yeah, it's a very different approach because normally it's like people know a prophecy, and then mm-hmm. you know you they kind of like say the little snippet about the prophecy, and then you they stop mm-hmm. referencing it, and you kind of forget about it, and then at the very yeah. end of the book, oh, this uh, is yeah. the prophecy, and you just landed on it, and oh yeah, we forgot yeah. about that. Whereas with this, it's like it's yeah, it's constantly referencing all these prophecies, and then it you know it hints to like when Apple became a product and how it made her family rich, and they figured it out. So it's it's like an like a like a farmer's almanac, but with prophecies, and it's it's very mm-hmm. and very different representation of prophecy which i thought was kind of interesting yeah and well and also just from a a writer's perspective too especially the bits where uh anybody from the previous centuries are are speaking the absurdly old spellings for things and the the capitalizations that are all over the place just kill me i love them yep it's a great tone indicator. <laughs> it is. And I, I actually um, listened to the audiobook when I went back and reread it recently. And mm-hmm. the um, the gentleman who read it was reading it in the old English and was actually pronouncing it that way as well. Oh, wow. That's a, well, it would have been Middle English at that point. Yeah. But, uh... but I mean, he was, it was obvious that when he was reading those sections because it, yeah. it sounded so weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, like it's pronouncing it real old <laughs> yeah yeah it's very very funny and reading it like just on text it's you know mm-hmm. even that i have to kind of wrap my head around like when you add all these extra vowels in there yeah. <laughs> and substitute yes. f's for s's and- yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it's a slog <laughs> yeah it's very very strange and it's i do i do like that kind of drive that the prophecies are it's it's a lot different vibe than what you would typically get out of a prophecy driven story. Yes, it, it's quite different from what normally you expect. Because you know you've got the chosen one, and you've got the uh, and you've got this you know this thing again that you're uh, you're saying they expound on and are like just they reference it once and they expect you to go back to that because that's all there is. Mm-hmm. Instead, uh, instead of she's basically predicted everything, so you just need to make sense of it because prophecies are cryptic and a little weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, how else would like a, a 17th century witch decipher airplanes or bicycle exactly. cars? Yeah, yeah. right. So yeah. You just have to decipher in her language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and this, and and yet again, we you, you see, you know, these stereotypical tropes that mm-hmm. you see in other books, and they've taken those mm-hmm. tropes and just completely turned them upside down. That is pure Pratchett yep. as well. <laughs> I mean, they do it constantly. Oh yeah, and it's oh, yeah. it's just so much. 
I know. I know. I, I feel like I keep saying the same thing over and over, but it's like, I just, uh, it's so creative and so different and it's very much uh, their style and it's, it's lovely. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. And I oh, want one, to now, one second. Oh, oh, I lied. <laughs> Julie has more. I was just going to say, I was like looking at the back of my book and there's like um, facts about how they wrote it. And so the question of how did they write it back in the nineties was mostly by shouting excitedly at one another down the phone a couple times a day for two months <laughs> and sending a disc back and forth to the other one guy several times a week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yep. So that was yeah. how the end. All right. We oh move on. my God. So good. Yep, it is wonderful. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, Julie, I'm going to pick on you some more. So all right. <laughs> can you give us a quick synopsis about the adaptation, which is the uh, HBO or Amazon, excuse me, Amazon's yeah. show? So the uh, synopsis of the show, Good Omens on Amazon Prime Video, <laughs> um, <laughs> is basically what we just talked about in the book. <laughs> the exact <laughs> same story. Uh, Angel and a demon get to get um, her on a mission to save the world by training up the Antichrist to be nice and normal, and only to find out, whoops, misplaced him, wrong Antichrist, gotta find him before the world ends in a week. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so this is this is what we were just talking about, like, before we started discussing that they keep to the original story in this um, film adaptation so well and it's so rare to see that and i it blew my mind to mm -hmm. to watch it and like oh my god they've done such a good job mm -hmm. at staying yeah. to the theme staying to the feel staying to the actual story and they did add a little creative stuff in there but it even matched the tone of the stuff that wasn't in the book and it, it was beautifully done Yes, it is almost like an, as close to it as an exact adaptation as you can get for the story, but not in such a way that it feels boring yes, to yes. watch it. Like, uh, like you see a lot of time with like, you know, adaptations of comic books where it's like, this right. is literally a scene for scene adaptation. Why mm -hmm. am I watching this when I could be reading the comic? Same thing kind of goes for books, but this one is like, no, I thoroughly enjoy reading the book and I thoroughly enjoy watching the show, both for different reasons. They did so well with this adaptation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and they it, they definitely keep an eye on the strengths and weaknesses of each medium, so they can actually they, they can actually play to one or the other. Depend uh, well, obviously, like they they just you know they can figure out what to change uh, to to strengthen the impression or the uh, or the message for the show versus how it is in the book. Mm -hmm, exactly, and I think one of my all time favorite things about the show is I think we've already kind of referenced this before, but is how they depict. Aziraphale and Crowley and mm. like the actual visual that they've given <laughs> these characters and it's you know Aziraphale is all in white most of the time or in beiges and he's got this very tartan. cherub <laughs> tartan thank you tar tartan tartan I think the height the height of fashion is tartan and <laughs> and and, the, and you can only get that one line in the book but like then you get the movie and he's a tartan they invented a tartan for the for the adaptation. Oh, did they really? They did. It's of heaven's they tartan. did. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, and so, yeah, so he's like a very cherub look. And then they pull those little nuggets out of there like he's wearing tartan. And then you've got Crowley, who is very serpentine and very like he's. Oh, my God. David. David Tennant has this hip sachet. He has no hips. He has he's <laughs> he has not had legs for like the first <laughs> bit of his life. So he has. No hips. He slinks and slithers everywhere. Every time he sits, he's slouching and splayed out. I know. I know. It's, it's incredibly good. And, and he's, he never and, eats food. 
nope, never uh, eats. Yep. And he's always wearing very slinky, very form-fitted, shiny fabrics. He normally has like leather pants. Right. I mean, right. it's it's an incredible visual and they nailed it. I've got leather pants for the cosplay for, uh, for him. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just beyond incredible visualization. And then, you know, you look at some of the even... The side characters, I think Gabriel mm-hmm. was a really interesting character where they they gave yeah. him they gave him purple contacts and then all uh-huh. of his outfit was themed to have kind of like a lavender color scheme. So his entire outfit, including his contacts, were color coded. And they made him look like John. They they picked John, John Hamm, Hamm for it. Yeah. So like they, like this idea of of uh, of heaven as an office mm-hmm. where and you've got. The guy who's been in Mad Men for all these years, right. which is this court, like the epitome of corporate sleaze. Mm-hmm. It's it's incredible how they depicted all the characters, and it's like I could literally pick apart every single character that they did because they they the attention to detail just to get the aesthetic right, not even just the actual like how the characters talk and how they interact with each other, just the aesthetic alone. It's, well, and the aesthetic it's beautiful. Too. Yeah, yeah, it really sells it. I love how they depicted like the angels and demons as a whole. Because in the book, we really just see Crowley and Xeraphil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Haster and Liger are mentioned, but not like described beyond like you know one's short and fat and one's tall and thin, and that's it. Right. Uh, but like in in the show, you see that all the demons kind of have these animalistic elements to them. Yeah. Like they have like animals on their head. Crowley's got like a snake tattooed on the side of his face because he's more subtle. Um, but yeah, there's like a frog on Haster's head, a chameleon on Liger's yeah. head. Beelzebub's got a giant fly on her head. Um, yeah. Or they have like scales or fangs or anything like that. While as the angels, as uh, Gabriel is more subtle. He's just got the purple eyes going on. But all the other angels kind of have like hints of like gold and silver yeah. flecking, like on their teeth or on their faces, their hands. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so they're all just subtly, subtly, or not so subtly in some cases not human and you can tell at a glance where they are where they are from yeah i love uriel i love michael too michael oh my god michael has michael's uh like and just like having that like in the angels and demons like you you really except for azraphil and crowley and even then that's kind of a a negligible thing in uh, in some cases uh you get this sense of there's there's not a gender there what gender what's that we don't like they're not human Mm -hmm. They're absolutely not human. And whereas Azra fails, like, oh, no gender for me, thanks. And then uh, Crowley's like, yes, please. <laughs> well, Crowley, like, he switches because he was the nanny for a bit. And he was, like, very distinctly feminine. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and actually, like, the, the, the black hooded thing at the Ark, that was, that's female-coded dress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so he's, yeah. he's like, yes, gender, give, give, give to me. <laughs> when somebody asks gender, he says, yes. Yeah. <laughs> They don't really have the language for it in the book, but like they definitely, they definitely do this in the movie where Ezra feels almost like, uh, no, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. no, thank you for me. I'm fine. <laughs> yes, yeah, and the, oh, oh no, thank you. but at least they know what it is. Yeah. Whereas the other, the other angels just seems like I, I don't. What are you talking about? Yeah, so, they don't care. I just picked it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like especially. I think Crowley and Aziraphale do because they've been on Earth, they've gotten native a little bit, but Crowley especially like in every scene we see of like their relationship together over the thousands of years, Crowley is always like in a different style of dress in a different style of hair, all that kind of time. Aziraphale occasionally changes his dress but never his hair Um, and and he's always like the same kind of uppity style, like you Mm -hmm. know, prim and proper attire no matter where or what time he's in, whereas Crowley is like very much in the times as the decades go by even. So it's gotta be fashion 
people in whatever decade he is. Yes. yes. <laughs> Even when it doesn't look good, he's still doing it. It's great. Yeah. I especially love like his 60s and 70s style. <laughs> oh my God. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. It's interesting to see that, you know, like your favorite characters come to life like that and it and that they're they match what you've envisioned in your head. Because that's one of the biggest downfalls that I have with adaptations is I'll have this idea of what they should look like in my head. And then when it's on screen, I'm like, I mean, I see it, but that's not how I would have envisioned it. And for uh-huh. these characters, it's it's spot on, which is, I it's incredible. I don't know how they did it. And I, I guess having Neil Gaiman on site to help with that probably definitely increased their chances of getting it right because it looks perfect. Yeah, well, and also like with the book, it's essentially um, they they do have some some touch points on you know the the actual physical things that they, they do you know like that are going on, but the description is more along the lines of personality and the way things the physicality reflects the personality than the actual physical thing, mm-hmm. and a lot of it's left you know either uh, left as either negligible or just up to the imagination, right and. That's really easy to do when you're doing a book, but you have to uh, get physicality into it with uh, with a visual medium. So then they had, you know, again, as you said, they had Neil right there and they could say, okay, so how do you think this translates and what, mm-hmm. do, you think, what do we need to do to achieve that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it shows that they took the time to get it right. Because, you know, all three of us had the same exact reaction of like, I can't pick which one's my favorite. <laughs> which yeah I mean, how often does that happen yeah <laughs> the people that i've talked to you know th- that have experienced both are just like yes they're both great <laughs> mm-hmm. well i wanted to um kind of pose the question to either of you whoever wants to answer um besides obviously the beautiful character descriptions and development that they created was there anything else about the adaptation that really stood out to you francis mcdormand is god Oh, yes. <laughs> I thought that was a brilliant choice. <laughs> Wonderful narrator voice. She does such a good job. Because she she gets to be the narrator and God. Uh, it's also just that sly tone from uh, mm-hmm. from the book. Just, uh, that that mm-hmm. really... That flavor text makes its way in. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That flavor text makes its way in. And it's, and all, but also that sense of, you know, playing cards in a dark room, blindfolded with an opponent who smiles all the time. Yeah. <laughs> or like when uh, uh, Gabriel's like, God does not play cards with the universe. And Curly's like, Where have you been? <laughs> does not play dice with the universe. Yeah. Where have you been? Yeah. Her voice was a great addition. And you're right, Julie, that it does help kind of have that segue of that flavor text that obviously is very hard to incorporate visually. Uh So what do you do? You add it into the actual script, which is genius. Um, They did a very good job incorporating that because you get that funny texturing that, you know, if they were to leave that out, I don't think it would have had the same humor and the same feel. They had to have, they had to have some sort of narrator. Mm -hmm. And it's, her voice was an excellent choice too. It took me a second to realize who it was. And I was like, sitting, yeah. I'm like, I know that voice. How do I know you? And then I had to look it up. I was like, oh my God. No, I had that he, moment yesterday when I texted you. And it's like, I know who's the voices of the guys in <laughs> the seance scene. It's Johnny Vegas. Yeah, the seance scene. Well, and let's talk about that scene while we're talking. Oh, oh it was so good. Oh my God. And the, and the thing is, is that like, you can do just about anything in the book, but like, you have to have actors do this on screen and, and oh my god she she had to do what four people Miranda yeah. Richardson <laughs> is incredible I love her so much and she nailed that role she really was, did 
they they decked her out so much in the beginning of that series uh-huh. that I didn't recognize her. I was sitting there looking at her. I'm like, gosh, you look familiar. And then it just hit me. I'm like, oh my God, it's Miranda Richardson. And she looks, <laughs> she looks so good and she nailed it. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad they took their time with that character by casting the right person with all the characters really, but with her, especially because it would be really easy to take like, you know, this part-time hooker, part-time uh, like tarot card reader and uh, mm-hmm. medium and just make her like, you know, a total dit or forgettable character, a throwaway thing. She's just a vessel for a zero fill to write later on, whatever. Mm-hmm. But no, they give her like her own life. Like, he, he, you know, she yeah. flirts with, you know, the guy who's calling her a harlot and a Jezebel all the time. <laughs> it's like, oh, Mr. Shadwell, the things you say. Very British, like, oh, you little, oh, you old, so old silly. Yeah. Sort of, <laughs> I think you need a nice cup of tea. <laughs> Yeah, it's adorable. <laughs> yeah, it is an interesting character that they definitely could have just been like, oh, she's just the weird lady that lives across the way and we don't talk about her and just move on. But yeah, they no, gave her a great character. Life. Yeah, and she's like, she pops up every now and again, like, oh, here's a telephone for you, dear. It's like, oh, <laughs> I've got a nice pot of liver for us on Sunday. Bring the plates back, yeah. will you, darling? <laughs> oh, away with you, you Jezebel. I mean, it's just, it's, it's such a funny little dynamic and it, yeah. It doesn't make any sense until it does. Yeah. yeah. And they they actually do that. They do do that translation transition in the book where uh, where she she suddenly is like out everybody out. I've got to talk with this guy in my head and it's and he'd better have a good explanation. Yeah. Yeah. And they do that like the translation in for into the into the adaptation oh god they nailed it they nailed it so well because because of course she's doing a bunch of different a bunch of different people one after another yeah and it's just it's just fantastic it's like one more uh character i want to talk about casting wise that they did really well just one more because we can go this all day um (laughs) is uh sergeant shadwell because uh, he, in the book, he's this, his accent is described as like being this like you know this weird dichotomy of like all the accents encompassed in the UK, mm-hmm, um, yeah. and they I think they specifically went for an American actor and just said you know what go for it. Yeah. <laughs> and he does it so yeah. well. The whole thing with the southern pansy is like it, <laughs> by, by inference you could suspect that he was standing on the North Pole. Uh, <laughs> I just. I just love his character so much because he was caught. How many nipples does she have? <laughs> I guess I better pop the question. How many nipples have you got? <laughs> and his character was so funny. Oh, it was God. so funny. And they, yeah, all it, it was actually interesting that a lot of the characters that technically would fall under the side char- character category didn't really feel that way. No, yeah. you never felt you were on a, you never felt you were on a side plot. It's like, all right, just get through this. Right. I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, Aziraphale and Carly are the main characters because, you know, they're kind of the pivotal roles that come back every time they jump from story to story. But they're the husbands. husbands. But it, it doesn't feel like any of the other characters are really less thought out or less like paid attention to. I did think that the kids didn't quite get as much attention in the adaptation as they did in the book mm. which might have been just like an issue with you know the the amount of time that they could have the kids work or just because there's so many different there's so there's so much meta going on with adam in mm-hmm. the book it's hard to do that in a visual medium a, a lot of the time they had to kind of find sideways and shortcuts as mm-hmm. for it uh, i feel like they did focus 
a bit more on the adults than the than the kids in the book, uh, except for obviously the end because that was the important bit. Right. They have to have that. Well, so you know, since we're already kind of talking about the comparison, we'll just jump into the comparison section because it is hard. Okay. It is hard <laughs> to break them apart because it's right. so close. So yes. you know, we were basically. If you can even call it skirting the line of that, anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> um, so something that I wanted to talk about with the comparison specifically mm -hmm. was, um, how did you guys like the ending of the show versus the book? So the endings are very similar, aside from like one big difference, which mm -hmm. is yeah. kidnapping to heaven and hell for Israel and Crowley, um, mm -hmm. which. I I liked with the adaptation because in the book, without having that, we don't really see the consequences for Crowley or especially Aziraphale for going against heaven and hell. Crowley, we get a little bit when he's like hunted in the middle by Haster and Liger. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we kind of see like, oh yeah, that's why you don't want to cross, you know, hell. But mm -hmm. we never kind of got that sense of, same sense of urgency with Aziraphale's character of like, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. why isn't he ready to go against heaven? What punishment is he going to face for not doing that? Whereas in the in the um, show, oh yeah, big reasons why they did not want to openly move against heaven or hell. They would be, you know, drowned in holy water or burned in hellfire. Right. Yeah. So and then it, if yeah. it, got, it got hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Immediately. Yeah. But yeah, so it kind of gave that sense of like, you know, oh, that's why they didn't want to like, you know, be out and about against heaven and hell respectively, because there would have been consequences for them. And we see right. what those were. So it kind of gives validation to their choices throughout the story. Whereas in the book, it's kind of like, you know, oh, maybe they're just set in their ways. They have to do heaven's bidding. They have to do hell's yeah. bidding. Well, they, yeah. And yeah, and they do, uh, as far as as far as the book goes, they, they do have a lot of that introspection in there for, for each character because they can get inside their heads. Um, mm -hmm. It's like they, they can't, they don't have to monologue to get uh, to get at that, uh, that sense there. Mm -hmm. um, this kind of goes back to what, uh, what I was saying about the kids. Like they, they could get into the kids' heads uh, or specifically Adam's head uh, most of the time and very easily. And they had a little more material with that. Whereas they were a lot more focused on the adults in that uh, adaptation. So they had to have more of an ending mm -hmm. than, and they had to get the rights. So. Yeah. And I yeah. think that with the with Adam's character, I think that they they kind of filled in those gaps like they didn't have as much attention on the kids. You're right. And I think they filled in those gaps with um, having the narrator kind of fill yes. that in. Yes. So I think that's kind of why it worked in right. their favor is that, you know, there were some kind of parts that, oh, there should have been more focus on Adam at this point or there should have been more focus on the kids in general at this point, And they were able to kind of bypass that. Because yeah, right. of how they handled the narration and kind of filling that in. Yeah, which right. I don't blame them for because you have to be careful with narration because it can very easily yeah. just become you're reading the book over pictures. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Whereas instead of strategically using it for flavor text, as it were, or to describe something mm -hmm. that would be hard to fully portray on screen. Um, sure. So if they were to do that the entire time that kids were on, it'd be like, oh, kids are on story time. You yeah. Know, just exactly yeah. what's in the book. So I don't mind that that for that reason there's less yeah. of the kids just mm -hmm. because i wouldn't want to feel like i am being read the story while i'm watching it kind of thing right and so wherever she narrates um you kind of get the sense like is she just like telling us what is happening or is she telling us what her plan was mm -hmm. the yeah. whole time that she wanted it to happen this way so if she were constantly narrating 
over the Antichrist scenes with the kids, would it would it make it the choice that, that Adam made for humanity less or more right. important? Would it have felt less like his choice or more like that was the plan all mm. along kind of thing? So um, I would say I'd say it's like a yes. big difference between the source material and the adaptation, right. which whatever one you like, kind of go from there. But I, I like agree. <laughs> I think that especially how they um, they gave a little bit more sense of urgency as far as the decisions that they were to make on, you know, going against their team, essentially, and how yeah. they have like, you know, if we if we do this, these are the consequences and actually showing right. those consequences, which they then obviously circumvent in their their glorious fashion. Um, but it's it's interesting to see that they actually kind of round out the the story almost better than the book in some ways because they they kind of fill in that void of like okay well they did all these things and they went against their their superiors so what's going to happen now right and uh with the difference as julie said between this god who is on our side on the viewer's side versus the god who's mostly silent Mm -hmm. in the book um like they're mostly i think they are completely silent i don't think god talks at all in the book no, there's no talking except for like, you know, Aziraphale, what did you do with thy, fl- with thy flaming sword? Okay. <laughs> that was it. Um, but uh, yeah, there's nothing outright we can point to and say, that's God. There are things that are hinted that, you know, oh, yes. this could so, have possibly, yes. which is like kind of religion these days. Like that could be yeah. a miracle. Who knows? Yeah, that's that's very much more of the experience that most people have, mm-hmm. unless you're got a, got a direct line there, I believe you do. Right. And uh, the, yeah, so there's that tensions, like, are we doing the right thing? in the book whereas with the whereas we've got a little bit more reassurance in the in the adaptation where god's like no 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 god wants you to be happy so they've got to uh, so there's got to be a little bit more tension on uh, that that you show and that's where that ending comes in as far as as far as that goes yeah and then i mean in the book they touch on this too and the the show also does it too but at the very end you know when all the angels come down and the demons go up and they're all kind of Mm. on earth together in front of the um military base and they they're trying to discuss like what should be done and then Mm -hmm. crowley and aziraphale point out like you don't actually know what the plan is do you like you (laughs) you keep saying it's it's god's will or it's it's whatever it but then you, you know, don't know it comes right down to it you don't actually know if this is actually the plan or not you're just assuming it is and that kind of brings up that whole full circle of like are we doing what we're supposed to be doing or should we be kind of turning things around and you know what they say about assuming <laughs> yep exactly <laughs> well it's also very pretty telling that uh, both gabriel and beelzebub were kind of like on the same page of like we got to go back and talk to our head offices to figure out what the <laughs> fuck is going on so yeah. we can both have our war time and get our playing out and just call it good right <laughs> right and that's the thing is they keep pushing like this war has to happen because this war has to happen and when they keep pushing well why does it have to happen like because it has to happen because we yeah. have to do this. And it's like, well, you don't know. <laughs> and, it's, and it's kind of that link to the real world as well. Uh, whereas like that, that disconnect that they have, mm-hmm. that that's, that's what makes them, you know, makes it so easy to say, well, this has to happen, obviously, that they don't spend basically any time on Earth. Like uh, Gabriel jogs around and needles Aziraphale and then Beelzebub will occasionally nag at Crowley is like, no, you got to do this. You got to do this. We got to make sure that the end of the world happens. But they don't spend basically any time uh, on Earth, whereas Aziraphale and Crowley do. Thanks mm-hmm. for the pornography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. they, gave, they gave his character so much more character in yes. the show yes. than in the book, which God. I really appreciated because I didn't feel like I had nearly as much of an appreciation for that character coming out of yes. the book. Well, you weren't supposed to. He was kind of a side, he was kind of a throwaway character. Right. Like he everybody knows him. Yeah, that he was in the book and in the show, they gave him so much more color. And yeah, I really appreciated that because it yeah, literally color. And I did appreciate how they they plop both the the you know the angels and demons that aren't mm-hmm. native, they plop uh-huh. them in and they're like so awkward and don't really mm-hmm. understand how things work. Yeah. And it's very apparent and I love it. <laughs> Yes. And especially, yeah, and it does, it's always more personal to people who are in on the ground and this is where they live mm-hmm. than it is to people who are just like, well, this has to happen. So like make it happen. Right. So, yeah. I was going to say, I especially like how they characterize the angels, like, you know, all business suits. So you kind of yes. get the cool sense that they are all like no nonsense, bureaucrat types, just, you know, office worker doing what they need to do. Uh, and always like, you know, at the, you know, tip top appearance wise kind of thing, unruffled. Yes. But at the end, when um, Gabriel comes down and Beelzebub comes up, Gabriel's hair is just fly away in the wind. <laughs> like he's been like raking his hands through it constantly. And yeah. he's like, he looks so frazzled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a great great description of him mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. I did actually want to bring up something that we haven't mm-hmm. actually talked about oh. yet which Ooh. I was obsessed with in the series version um, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. the four horsemen yes, yes. yeah oh. so let's oh, talk yes. about that okay uh-huh. <laughs> they're great I love them what? yes I love them so much and like and also like now I do admittedly really 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 enjoy the intermissions with uh, with the horse people in the in the book just because this was one of one of my first experiences with having a uh, having a very familiar mythological character mm-hmm. or like biblical specifically that get put into a real world situation like it like an urban like this this was one of the things that made me love urban fantasy because that's what this mm-hmm. is. and and just just like how do you update uh, something so old as as a cataclysmic horse person into the yeah, into the modern world and they did it so well with humor but also like you were scared of these people. Mm-hmm. These are people who are not going to to cause a good time. Especially War is my favorite. Just I I love War her. is pretty good. I I, caused, I I definitely was her last Halloween. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you were you were scared when you got these. Except for Death, actually. Death, uh, Death oddly enough, Death is like the chill one. Yes, <laughs> Death is the chill one. <laughs> Yeah, and you don't see him till the end, or you know, mm-hmm. don't you don't Towards see him end. until the end, and it's and it's very much Terry Pratchett's death. Uh, mm-hmm. Like that, I had already read some Pratchett too, uh, so I was like, "Death, you speak back." <laughs> it's not Discworld death, but it's it's very similar. Yeah. Well, something in the in the books that I thought was interesting is they don't actually say their names until towards no. the very end of the book. Yes, they allude to who they are, but they don't actually say their names. Whereas in the show when they actually like you know they have a little bit of a, a, a segue yeah. into the character so you can see them and then they splash their name on the screen yes so it's very different ways of of introducing those characters but uh-huh. i will say i don't think i disliked how they introduced them in the show but what i really loved again which we keep coming back to is the visual res- representation that they gave yes. all of the characters they did such a phenomenal job and oh God, their, yes. their costuming and the color coding and everything about them was perfect. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, I, I liked all of them, of course, but at the same time, it's like, you know, yeah, they adapted to the current times, like it's no longer pestilence, it's pollution. Although I think pestilence <laughs> yes. has uh, made a roaring comeback this last year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh. um, but uh, anyway, it's like, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, pollution is pollution. War is war. You know, death is death. You know, we still have those things. But it's like famine. How do you do famine for a right. you know, modern world? And they did it famine. so well that makes oh, you, God, all, yes. at the same time, like all the others, scared of him because it's like he does still exist. You have people on like these starvation diets, these super fancy restaurants that serve like nothing to nothing. you <laughs> um, or, you know, fast food food that isn't food. Yes. And wars in her armor, she's bleeding out of her eyes and things. And then, like, um, pollution is like got black ooze coming out of everything. And death, and but then death is just yeah. death, death doesn't change. <laughs> death comes in late, so he doesn't change much at all. Yeah, just mm-hmm. e- either in the book or in the or, or in that, right? We kind of get in the sense that, unlike the other ones, well, it's like the other ones, they're they are personified human ideas, whereas death, death. is just death. death, it was there before all of this, it's gonna be there after all this so he's like i just showed up for the party party's over bye <laughs> exactly yes. it is a it's an interesting combination of death like from uh, where you see new game is death who's mostly sandman type uh, uh, type death uh as this kind of reassuring character very familiar character uh, again been there from the beginning is it greeted you when you were uh, when you began life if it's there to welcome you when you're in you end it and Pratchett's death, who is like very much kind of he's kind of a businessman himself, mm-hmm. but transactional. Like, yeah, but he's a patient businessman. He's just like, I get it, I do. This has to happen. We'll ease you into this as much as we can, but this has got to happen. Yeah, it is interesting how they they portray the characters. You're right. Death is a very kind of zen character in comparison to the other three who are very yeah. manic because they have one drive. Yep, that's all You've they know. One thing. Well, it's mm-hmm. kind of like they said before, it's like, if you want to get to the uh, true evil or true good potential, you go to humans. And so that's also personified in them and that their manic, desperate states like, let's crash through the gates. No, we're doing this properly, says death. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> death, who is inevitable. And his and he's like, everything in its time. And yeah, they but like these, again, these human ideas, they have all the human characteristics, including glee and anger at being, at being stymied and... Mm-hmm. They're like human espresso. They're, they're, it's not just coffee, it's espresso. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're the, they're the, yes. the condensed shot of, of condensed of shot. Yes. Yeah. 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 yes. Well, and I thought that in the show, I thought it was interesting how they, um, when they are defeated by the kids, they, they, I don't think that they really describe it in the same way in the book, but they actually turn into their kind of monikers. Yeah, they, they get sucked back into their instruments. Yeah, which I don't think they really described it that way in the book, did they? It, well, yeah, actually, that that's oh, what they, they I didn't did. Remember that way? They, yeah, they no, essentially disappeared, and the the implication is that they they returned to their object. Okay. Um, they kind of just disappeared in the in the adaptation, if I remember correctly. So yeah. in the, in the adaptation, they they basically disappear, and what's left is their monikers. And yeah, yeah. In I feel like I guess I read it differently in the book. I just thought that they just kind of you know poof and they're gone. Poof and they're gone, but they kind of like insinuate that, like, you know, they may have physically disappeared from this area, but they're not gone and like, right, right. Yeah. They're still still in human form. But that, gosh, that, that was, again, they nailed the visual, they nailed the Mm -hmm. feel, and they did Mm -hmm. such a good job to, I just, I loved 
them on motorcycles is just <laughs> it's a genius yes. way to again modernize the concept because it's a very yeah. old concept and it's the, i did miss the also for people of the apocalypse the four of my apocalypse yes. oh that's, that's right I why they cut it. yeah that would have been awesome that so they kind of touched that on that in the diner when they first all get together and they're playing a the little like trivia game with death, but they don't ever go beyond that, which I was nah. a little bummed. I can I see why they would have taken that out. It wasn't really necessary yeah. for the story. Yeah, it was it cut was it was tighter in the yeah, it was tighter in the in the novel because they could be in the but like as far as the storytelling for the adaptation, right. it just didn't it. really need to be in there. But you know, that guy that kept having his name change over and over and over again. <laughs> Bloody Stupid. <laughs> yeah, that was a very funny section. I can see why they wouldn't have included that, though. I think it would have like just bogged down and like, you know what? Too much running time. Let's go. Along with most of Aziraphale bouncing around into bodies, like they, they, they was much longer in the book. Like, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of flavor that they obviously didn't include in the adaptation, but I don't think that it hurt it by any means. No, um, and I think that because they they did so much more focus on the characters mm. it really paid off because mm. i mean when you think about it there's only like what like of the characters that are in the show there's only maybe like 10 characters that you see consistently and they all have a really important role and they they all have an actual personality that you can follow and get behind and then you know everybody starts to kind of intersect with each other as you get towards the end of the show but it it works and it's perfect for having such a small cast whereas you know like shows like game of thrones where there's a bajillion characters that you have to keep track of and And there's and like there's 26 named or you know mentioned characters in the in the dramatis person uh in the in the front of the book but like but it also includes full chorus of tibetans aliens americans (laughs) atlantisans and other rare and strange creatures of the last days Yeah, so obviously not the main character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's oh my gosh. I just I, I just can't I, I get like get so fangirly over both. I know. Mm-hmm. And I, I know. and I can't stop talking about how great everything turned out, especially from mm-hmm. the adaptation standpoint, because that's where I was expecting it to be, you know, things to be dropped. You kind of do expect things like adaptations is in general to 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 kind of miss the mark on, on right some they tend to be a little bit more lackluster and you know they they have really good spots that are they they nailed but then you know they drop the ball in other ways but here i mean across the board and even when they added some embellishments of their own it wasn't super obvious if you've never read the book you would never have known that that wasn't supposed to be there but except it was so because it fits so perfectly yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's like I guess it all boils down to with uh, originals and adaptations is adaptations are usually a distilled form of the original. And if at its heart, you don't like the overall major theme of an of an original, you're not mm-hmm. going to like its distillation that much. And right. I think with this sense, because Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett are are a both so wonderful mm-hmm. and be the story on its own without any you know flares or details is a great story that uh unless they truly missed the mark that this adaptation was going to be anything less than okay mm-hmm. but because they took so much time to distill it in the right ways and add in the right ways that it's just fantastic overall and they'd wanted to do it like uh, before before terry died they had wanted to to do something like this there's a, there's a radio uh, show actually that mm-hmm. we, yeah. we can't get into we really don't want to be here all day the the fact that they had already planned for this and mm-hmm. you know, and thought about this 
I likely helped a lot. And then just like, especially with something with this much nostalgia value, because, you know, everybody who's read it are, is at least 30 years old. Mm-hmm. At <laughs> least, yeah. Well, who who read it early on when it came out. Well, that made me think of something, Megan. I think you and I kind of briefly talked about it offline, but uh-huh. I was doing, again, some kind of background research on just the making of on the book side and the adaptation side. Right. And, you know, obviously right. the show was made when Terry Pratchett had already passed. Right. And so Neil Gaiman had originally said that he's like, you know, I don't want to make a, a live adaptation without Terry Pratchett. And so when he died, he's like, well, that kind of, you know, that ends that I can't make it without him. And then I think yeah. it was years later, he mm-hmm. he was provided a letter that Terry Pratchett had written to him before he had died, obviously, and yeah. had basically told him, like, if I die, you have to you have to produce this for both of mm-hmm. us. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. I know. And I was like, oh my God. So that's why this is going to cry for the rest of the day. I know. And I'm like, I'm not crying. You're crying. And so, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say that explains something I heard, whereas, like, Neil Gaiman was asked, like, you know, oh, why didn't you change this or why didn't you adapt this to more modern thinking? Like, um, it's kind of like hinted very heavily in the book and has been theorized by fans forever that uh, Crowley and Aziraphale are, you know, hashtag ineffable husbands. Um, yes. And they kind yes. of asked, like, you know, hey, Neil Gaiman, why didn't you adapt this this way? And he said that he personally would have loved to have done that, that he always thought of them as being together, but that Terry Pratchett hadn't. Um, and he mm. wanted to honor that for his friend by not changing it when he mm-hmm. didn't have a say in the production. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, anything about their relationship in particular that suggests that it that it isn't true. Like, it's, it's simply not stated. Nothing is there in the relationship in the show that isn't there in the book. Well, mm. I would say they have, like, all those flashback scenes of how their relationship grows over time, which are not in the book. Um, right. It, it's it's less, it's more alluded. Yeah, so you kind yeah. of get more in-depth that way and just kind of see mm-hmm. how they develop their arrangement, capital A, um, <laughs> throughout the years and just, like, what their relationship is to each other. They're, like, they're not exactly enemies. Um, right. And if they weren't on different sides, who knows what they could have been together. Mm-hmm. If one of them, if one of them had been portrayed as a woman, then they, uh, they absolutely. Oh yeah, it would have been full force. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but so who knows what they got up to when Crowley was a nanny? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if it's like if you believe, it's there, and there's nothing to dissuade it. If you don't believe, you don't have to see it. So it, mm-hmm. it works out both ways, which I liked. It does, mm-hmm. and you know, you there's there is quite a lot of uh, of discussion and uh quite quite a lot of uh heated discussion over you know representation in media uh, mm-hmm. of, you know explicit representation rather than the the kind of uh, under the radar thing that a lot of thing a, a lot of people actually did in in media in the 90s the 80s it's, uh, early 2000s and even now where there's what three bi characters that have stated that they are bi on tv Mm-hmm. And very and like all three of them, <laughs> all three of them, and, and they uh, constantly yeah. mention it. <laughs> and they're girls. Uh, sure. and, <laughs> and, and yeah, it's uh, balancing the representation versus the needs of the story is also. Uh, there's also something to be said for that, just because as much as I would love for them to just mention, oh yeah, that's my husband, and like that would be literally all I'd need to uh, for either either the book or the show. It's the fact that not mentioning it doesn't change it. Uh, the impression you get one whit. Mm-hmm. It just really speaks to how uh, how natural it is in, in both tellings. Mm-hmm. 
and also just the characterization depth in general uh, of the books. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need an outright statement of like, this is our relationship to each other and this is how we define it. You just, it just is. And, but you can yeah. get it with just simple words. Like at the end where it's like, you know, Satan's coming, what are they going to do? And all Aziraphale has to say to Curly is do something or I'll never talk to you again. <laughs> I know. It's so married. It. And that so did it. <laughs> yeah. Like I get, I get wanting the explicit representation because there's not enough of it. But come yeah. on, this is representation. It is. <laughs> yeah. And it, they did a really good job in the show to show the subtleties and make it a very sweet relationship mm-hmm. with, yes. without having to like blatantly put a, a label on it. Like, look, yeah. we're, we're being inclusive. <laughs> like, yeah. And any, any other relation, any other bits of the relationship, that's what fan fiction is for. Yeah. Right. And they don't, There's ever, a lot. <laughs> they don't so much and they don't really ever, the book never addresses it. So mm-hmm. I feel like trying to address something like that in the show would mm-hmm. be forced. Yes. And you don't, you're right. You can just use your imagination and fanfic your heart out in your head. And it, it works out just as well because the relationship is, They've so got funny. drama. They've got yeah. drama in the gazebo. That like <laughs> they, they they like they they managed to they they did manage to make it like extremely deep personal relationship, whether or not it's romantic, with drama and with uh, and with this undying affection, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of whether or not they termed it romantic. And right. and honestly, like you know, the fo- uh, with the focus is being you know very much on the romantic. It's there's there's a, lot, a whole other topic to be said about that too so we'll mm-hmm. we'll, get, we'll stick to the the books in the show <laughs> this would be an entirely different podcast for you I know, I know. <laughs> that's a whole nother bag well with with that i guess any final thoughts i want a dog <laughs> <laughs> name a dog they have a lot of trouble to name my dog <laughs> okay megan has spoken julie <laughs> uh uh damn it uh <laughs> I love curly. I love demons. I love I tapes on modern Christian mythology and yes. everything like that. And I will talk about it happily for days. So don't ask oh, me because yes. I will. I know. You, I know. Wrote, I know. you wrote papers on it in college. I did. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, well, thank you so much to the both of you. I really appreciate having this conversation. This has been magical. And I'm so happy Wonderful. that we are all able to geek out about this together um final 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 question not related to the podcast Uh, i was wondering if you guys could provide me with what are you currently reading that you would like to highlight right now are you sure you want to know i always (laughs) want to okay well okay with uh, yes i do all right. Well, uh, as I mentioned, I love Christian mythology and turning it on its head and dissections of what is good and what is evil. I am reading a book called I, Lucifer ooh, by Glenn ooh. Duncan. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's basically God gives the devil an offer. It's like you have a chance to be redeemed if you take over a human life and live his life. To um, Yeah, in a, a sin-free life on earth and you have a chance to be redeemed in heaven. And Lucifer, and they and like, we'll give you a trial run of a month to see if it works out. And Lucifer is like, you know, all right, I'll take it. But fuck living a sin-free life. I'm going <laughs> to all the drugs and alcohol and sex and everything I can. It's great. Um, and basically, just like, there's a deep dive in like Christian mythology and like, you know, the devil's perception on everything and what God is and what his role is in the universe and ultimately what his final choice is at the end of the book, which I won't say, but it's great. I'm rereading it. And I love it. <laughs> Ooh, is it set in present day? It is. Yes. Okay. Awesome. That sounds amazing. I'll have to go look that it up. Does. Yes. Megan, what about you? All right. Well, 
I mentioned I like urban fantasy. This is a little more uh, sci-fi fantasy uh, in that it is a modern zombie Ooh. zombie book. It's called Feed by Mira Grant. Although that's that, a gross uh, name, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's uh, and and it's it's a dual thing because it's actually about this uh, trio of bloggers. So the the way uh, the way it works is that the zombie apocalypse hit, and the 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 regular news media dropped the ball hard. Like they were like, oh, what could this be? And then the only so the only ones the only things that you could really trust. What uh, were the bloggers and the people who were on the ground and and getting and getting more information about this? So there's these three bloggers, these two adopted siblings, and uh, and their buddy. One is about uh, facts, one is about research, and one is about uh, fiction. Because there's a bunch of different classes of bloggers. There's you you have to be licensed. You have at this point the world has been divided up into safe, semi-safe, and non-safe zones of various ratings in order to prevent you know the spread of the zombie disease. And now they have gotten license for an assignment that is going to be both extremely cool and very dangerous. It's the next presidential election, and they are covering the pres- uh, one of the presidential candidates. And they have to travel with them and uh, as they go through zombie country, essentially, which is Whoa. the United States. Interesting. Yeah. Yes, and it's wild. Uh, only just begun it, it is, uh, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is amazing. Mira Grant is the author. She's uh, actually uh, one of uh, Shannon McGuire's pseudonyms. But uh, you you look up Mira Grant, and the feed is uh, is playing off the blog feed versus the interesting. Yes. Oh, that's so wild. Okay, great. Well, very topical because yeah. God. <laughs> well, thank you to you both. Uh, I am again extremely grateful for the conversation it was very stimulating and lovely and as always wonderful to talk to you wonderful to talk to you yes. <laughs> yeah and thank you to all of our listeners i appreciate you chiming in and hopefully we will see you next week thanks bye bye music ending okay thank you for being a friend